regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, by whole long-form and in-depth conversation with data and ML practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. Our guest today is Jason Resch, an investor on the enterprise team at Greylock, investing in security, AI, ML, data, infrastructure, and developer tools. Before joining Greylock, he incubated machine learning companies at AI Fund and was a management consultant at McKinsey. Jason is a Bay Area native, graduated from Stanford, and when not working, can be found reading, hiking, playing Asian vampires, and cheering on Stanford football. But yeah, Jason, with that introduction, glad to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, James. Uh, fabulous. By way of introduction, while doing a bit of research of our conversation, I-, I found out that you were originally from the Bay Area and came of age in the Moneyball era of baseball. So could you mind sharing some of the formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, great question. I grew up in Marin County. It's across the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a beautiful place to grow up. Amazing hiking, biking, sailing, swimming, anything outdoors. I try and go back as much as I can. Uh, and it really gave me a love for the Bay Area, for their sport teams, for living here, and, and plan to continue to live in the Bay Area as long as I can. On the moneyball front, growing up, I was like a baseball fanatic. I still really like the sport, but I was a true fanatic. I think as a kid, I was so, so baseball has 162 games a year. Uh, not including playoffs, and I was probably watching at least 150 of them. So with the real-time commitment, maybe not the most efficient, but one good thing that came out of it is in seeking to understand baseball better, I read the book Moneyball, which was just becoming very popular at the time. This was before the movie, but with the Oakland A's nearby in the Bay Area, it was particularly relevant. My Giants were not very good at the time, so seeing how the A's with limited resources were able to exploit inefficiencies and compete with less the Giants had became a real interest for me. And I think reading the book, it really inspired me to dive into math and statistics and in college that later turned into a passion for machine learning. Yeah, thanks for sharing those experiences. Just, just out of curiosity, yeah, what about baseball that, that made you obsessed with it? Yeah, it's a good question. I think on the, on the sports side, they do an amazing job with youth leagues. Little League is very pervasive, particularly in, in Northern California. There's just the social aspect and getting to know people that way. I was actually uh, born in South Carolina where they did not have a major league team. So I'm moving out here. The Giants had Barry Bonds, who was just a game-breaking player. And, you know, getting to see that dominance really drew me in um, relative to other sports at the time. From a analytics perspective, I think baseball was very early to that uh, revolution in part because the game is very discreet. One pitcher throws the ball to one batter who hits or does not hit the ball often to one fielder. 
So it's a lot, I think, easier to analyze with the tools they had available at the time than something like soccer or American football, which is a very, which were both very free flowing games, positions all needing to work in unity, et cetera. Yeah, it sounds like baseball is, is the spot that you know, pioneer spot analytics, right? With, with the statistic and I think these days, like a lot of other sports start adopting more data to, to improve their operation and with recruiting and, and getting positioning players, that kind of stuff. So it's also, yeah, like getting involved, learning more about baseball during that early days really help have you appreciate more of that the power of analytics, um, not just in sport, but in overall in, in job, other industry. Absolutely. And they like the Warriors have done an amazing job of it. And I think are, are famous for their approach there. It spread to football as well. It's more in-depth analysis. Yeah. So you mentioned you grew up in the Bay Area from the Marine and for college, you went down to the South Bay, Palo Alto, go to Stanford to study mathematical and competition science with a minor in classical studies, actually. And later on, you also took multiple PhD level courses in data mining and statistical learning for your MS degree in statistics there. How would you describe your overall academic experience Denver? Yeah, Stanford's an amazing university. I feel very lucky to have gone there and made a lot of lifelong friends. And my wife, Victoria, was actually in, in my class as well at Stanford. Dramatically changed my life going there. I think academically, I came in, despite the interest in math and stats, took a little bit more of a liberal arts approach, both in the more obvious way with classical studies, looking, studying Greco-Roman and Egyptian history and culture and language and how that has impacted us to today. But also even on the technical side, mathematical and computational science or MCS is more of a liberal arts technical major. So the idea was to take the fundamental technical classes in computer science, mathematics, statistics, and what Stanford calls management science and engineering, which is like an evolution of operations research. So I did that as, hey, it's great to get a, a broad technical background across a number of different fields, and then decided for my master's to specialize in stats beyond leading to a continued interest in, in data and AI ML. I think stats was really useful in, in shaping um, some parts of how to think about the world and the events going on. One, just like probabilistically and thinking of, of many things in a distribution uh, as opposed to as fixed or um, a certainty. And then two, taking a Bayesian approach to incorporating new information and adjusting my prior beliefs and seeing how that actually like humans obviously do this, but seeing it actually expressed mathematically, I think like reinforces it and forces you to be open, more open to incorporating new information. Yeah, that's a really excellent point you mentioned about sort of Bayesian thinking and, and learning about distribution, basically come up with a probabilistic approach to making decisions, which I think is like a, a very important mindset, a mental model of an investor when you have to make evaluating decision, right? When you invest in a startup with a lot of uncertainty, I assume that you borrow a lot of that, that probabilistic mental framework and apply that on a day-to-day basis and as an investor. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say we'll talk more about investments later, but investments are very much about the people and there's always gaining more information on that front, but you think about it a little bit more, more people, or I think about it a little bit more people centric. I would say like the part where particularly shows up is when you think about portfolio construction as a VC, you end up with at a multi-stage firm like Greylock or even seed funds, you end up with a portfolio of companies. And then if you look at the, what drives VC returns, it's very classically the power law where there's certain distributions of outcomes and successes. And it's not always totally knowable ahead of time or knowable at all ahead of time. 
Um, so, so keeping that in mind when you make investments and looking for things that will um, spike and, and have that potentially outsized return is very helpful. For sure. Just going back more into your academic experience, do you recall any favorite classes taking a Stanford? Yeah, not so many. I'd say on the more like liberal arts side, there was actually a history of San Francisco, which growing up here, I found fascinating. Think about, I don't think people always think about the city we live in in a modern way and how it dates back hundreds of, and in some cases, thousands of years. And so that was a particular one. I would say like on the technical side, there's stats 315A and B, which is the statistical learning PhD courses. It's taught by some of the leading professors in the field. There's a great book called Elements of Statistical Learning, which I think has been foundational in statistics. And all three of the professors taught at Stanford and taught those classes. So it was amazing to be able to learn from the best there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that experience. Also, you to be able to blend both the, the labor arts thinking as well as the um, more technical uh, front of the work. And that really shaped your undergrad experience. Now, so besides academics, you actually participate in the uh, Mayfield Fellowship Program, uh, which I think is really grown for lead to be leadership skill related to growing startup technology companies. You just get some hands-on uh, experience building a mobile application to find entertainment-based events. So how did these involvements affect your Stanford experience? Yeah, so Mayfield is a fantastic program. I highly recommend everyone at Stanford apply as a junior or senior. It's structured as a nine-month program. The first three months are spent taking business school-style case studies where people who are actually tech leaders who are actually into case studies come in uh, and review them with you and you learn from the decisions they made at early stage and high-growth startups. You really bond really closely with your class. The next three months are spent interning at a startup which was Sitch, the mobile app company that you mentioned. And then the next three months, we basically rotate to teach classes about a topic of our choice. So at the internship, I'd say my, it was an amazing mentorship experience from the CEO. I'd say the other learnings are like consumer is really hard. This is part of why I'm an enterprise investor. I think it's, it's difficult for me, at least to understand what really catches on with consumers and what inflects. Mm. Well, there have much better instincts on it than I do. But the one lens that was really helpful to me was using data to A-B tests and make sense of the things out there, make sense of what is catching on and what is not. As one example from the events, Sitch basically found entertainment-based events for people in your community. And one thing that the founders had assumed is people were not interested in events, or that was not the demographic. But one of the things I did in writing our recommendation algorithm was it just added element of randomness to eventually actually push some of these events and see what the response was. And it turned out that the, the reaction to those actually was strongly positive and people using or the user base actually did want to see those events. So just showing like a trade example, but showing, Hey, you actually do need to use data to validate your hypotheses um, around consumer behavior in some cases. So great summer experience as part of Mayfield, then, you know, came back taught the courses. I'd say the other thing is Mayfield is an amazing community. Both the founders, Josh Reeves from Gusto. I went on to work at Open Doors for a little bit. Their, one of their co-founders, Ian Wong, was in Mayfield and was a mentor of mine, as well as on the VC side. Back two of my partners, Greylock, Sam and Josh, were both Mayfield fellows of different years. So having that community has been a huge help in my career as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It seems like you, you met a lot, great, not just from skill set building, but also like from a yeah, networking perspective, met a lot of amazing people who has been influential in the later part of your career. Mission a little bit about actually working at Open Door, thanks to one of those connections 
on Matthew Pelship and more specifically, you were part of the business operation team during a high period at OpenDoor, where you optimize pricing models and processing processes to improve unit economics. What lesson have you learned about cross-functional collaboration, company building, and culture scaling from working there? Yeah, I joined it at a, at a really interesting time uh, where it was scaling very quickly. Um, I'd say that the most um, clear lesson around culture building and takeaways, I think, was the importance of um, doing things in person, especially where there are uh, geographic or background um, differences in that I was out in San Francisco working in the corporate office, but a lot of the core, the key and core work for the company was being done by real estate professionals out in the field. So our initial markets were like Scottsdale or, in, or Arizona, Phoenix, broadly, Dallas, places like that. Um, and my role was very much in the cross-functional strategic role, combining like almost management consulting type skills with data science skills of hey, how do we improve our buying practices? And this is an example where you can see something in the data, but that's actually not enough. You really need to go talk to the real estate leads in market. So we ended up flying out there multiple times, and that was probably the most informative part of the experience to see like, how do you match on what we're seeing in the data to what they're actually seeing at the front lines and where there are mismatches. And I think without those two sides, we couldn't really actually improve the operational practices. I think you mentioned here is like you've got being the, the liaison between data science and real estate broker, right? Communicate some of the data analysis fighting to a broker so they can make actionable processes for their work. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I, I think, and I would also say just like learning from them as well as we would sometimes we'd end up with a question from the data of, hey, why are we not doing this? And oftentimes there was a very good reason we were not doing that without our sort of real estate domain knowledge or not coming from a real estate background, we wouldn't be able to know that. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing that learning experience on working in open door. So after finishing your undergrad at Stanford, you spent about a year as a management consultant at the Bay Area office of McKinsey, where you advise a company on disruptive technology trends, as well as sales and marketing direction. Uh, what lesson have you learned from being a management consultant? Yeah. So I think the biggest learning for me was just the, as it relates to my current career, was just working with so many large enterprises that now the companies I work with sell to. One, just seeing how messy their acquisition processes are or vendor and software acquisition processes. But two, in particular, like how much of an absolute mess data is and how difficult it is. We have someone who's having idealized view of how data should look that particularly for large enterprises that have been around decades and are not in the tech industry, that's not how it actually looks, right? Getting the firsthand view around how messy and disjointed and how, how difficult it actually is for these enterprises to digitally transform and improve their data stack, I think it's been um, really powerful for me in data investments. Yeah, I see. So learning how to work with both large enterprise and then also having a, even a deeper look at, at the issues with data and how this own company have to deal with data. And I think that's the sort of cultivate your passion, right? For the data space in general. That's exactly right. And I think if you only look at data leaders in, in Silicon Valley and what is Uber or Netflix doing, that's not representative of your average enterprise out there to state the obvious. For sure. After McKinsey, you... Work for another at the AI Fund Startup Studio, which I think was incepted by Dr. Andrew Ng. 
And during the time at AFUN, you launch AI-enabled SaaS startups by iterating on prototypes, sending design partners, and recruiting the funding executives for these companies. Would you mind unpacking these different initiatives that you work on? Yeah. AI-fun was a great, I got in, I joined at the early days. So it was a very, it was an amazing experiment on how to systematize the entrepreneurial process and repeatedly launch companies. This is a very hard thing to do. And I'm very impressed having gone through it by the startup studios out there that do this really well. It's hard enough to start once one successful startup doing it as part of a system and as, as a repeated way is, is that much more difficult. I'd say my role was closest to a product role. So we had in-house engineering and my role was to wear the investor hat to look at the market. Uh, after we decided a market was interesting, then put on the product hat, build a prototype, show it to potential customers, get design partners. And if all that goes well, then we would bring in a founding team from outside to take over the company and run it from there. So we looked at a lot of the, there was horizontal ML tools like explainability. Uh, one company I worked on there is still running as well as a lot of vertical applications. So I worked on ML for maritime shipping, uh, which was an industry I knew nothing about before joining AI fund, but got to go work with Maersk and over in Copenhagen and, and some of the large Japanese shipping giants like Mitsui and the company there bearing AI, I think was recently named a CB Insights top 100 company, top 100 AI company, thanks to the founders there. We also spent a lot of time at ag tech and it looked at as many different verticals as you could. Yeah, that, that's just that you like a very broad exposure to different application and machine learning and diving heads on some of the problems some of the early stage company have to do from building sample prototypes to fighting early customers, right? Reflecting on that period a bit, did you see any sort of common challenges of like fighting design partners for the ISAS company in general? Yeah, great question. I think one common challenge was just around, again, working in like maritime shipping is very different from working with Netflix, right? Like they've heard of AI at the time, 2017, 2018, did not have the in-house expertise around it. So figuring out one, how do we work with their data? And two, how do we like translate the technology we had to in particular deep learning, which is you know, not always the most explainable to business needs and really make that connection. So that, that was probably the biggest challenge in signing up design partners was just the communication there. We were helped honestly by Andrew's connections as well as our um, LP base, which I think Andrew was very smart to take not only VCs like Sequoia and Greylock, but also strategic partners like Stewie, Samsung, these large conglomerates that could connect us to companies so we could really listen, learn from their business units. Yeah, thanks for going over that approach at why you work at AirFund. So since 2019, you have been an investor at Greylock Partners, which is a very well-known uh, venture capital firm that back entrepreneurs who are being disruptive, market-transforming consumer and enterprise software companies. Yeah, so to my question is twofold. First, how did this opportunity come about? And second, what about Greylock that attracted you to join the firm? So the opportunity came about as a result of, I would say, having met several people from Greylock over the years and being very impressed by them. In particular, Song was a Mayfield fellow ahead of me, so knew him from Stanford and met several other people along the way. Obviously, part of a VC is meeting younger people coming out of university and Greylock did a great job engaging with me on that front. Hmm. 
I, I think when we started talking, it was clear we shared an interest in machine learning, security, and several parts of the enterprise domain specifically, and looking to move from the startup studio to Greylock. What was really uh, special to me about Greylock was the ethos of partnering really closely with founders. Greylock makes comparatively few investments as an early stage fund relative to our other peer funds. Each investor is only doing about one to two investments per year on average. So when we sign up, it's really, hey, let's work closely with founders. Let's put on the product hat. Let's work together to build use case definition. Let's dig on our hands and help you hire the right people at the later stage. The, the particularly the senior partners of Greylog have seen how to scale go to market teams and best practices. So really helping and being a trusted partner across the company journey was really appealing to me. So getting to work with some of Greylock's amazing partners, as well as with world-class founders, I felt was a good next step in my career. The other thing I think was really interesting is I, I found we were doing incubations. Greylock actually has an extremely successful incubation practice. So Palo Alto Networks, Workday, more recently, Abnormal Security, all started in Greylock's office and become two large public companies and one of the fastest growing private security companies. So getting to, to stay involved in that, and that's something I still spend time on every year and pro provide some continuity from what I was doing at AI Fund was really important to me as well. I see. So it sounds like a very seamless transition almost from AI Fund to Greylock because you still want to be hands-on working with these founders on this problem, prototype, customer design, partners, incubation. Why like under Greylock is probably a bigger machine to, to support the investment procedure, right? Yeah, I think I, I was loving my time at AI Fund and wasn't looking to, to move, but I thought Greylock, in addition to the incubation side, would just really give me the more traditional venture standpoint as well through the lens of still partnering with founders. So getting to really understand, hey, what are the best markets we should be going after was a world that was a little bit more foreign to me at the time. So out of curiosity, as a new investor, the firm how did you prove your value upfront in potential deals and start forming your investment thesis? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there is a lot about building trust, both with the other investors at Greylock, but in particular with founders. So I'd say like the biggest thing I'm glad I invested in early was working really closely with founders, both the early stages learning from them, but also doing whatever I could to provide value. And I think getting the trust of founders, also there's a loop there. The investors feel more comfortable bringing you in to other deals, other working with other companies. And then through this cycle, you can really start to build up the network of other investors as outside of Greylock, as well as I would say like domain experts and also buyers. I think a really valuable thing I do weekly is so say I'm, you know, spending time in security. I go out and try and talk to CISOs of growth stage and large enterprise companies to see, hey, what are your priorities? What are the top things you're looking at? Um, and I think that's something that has really been useful to build up my investment thesis, talking to as many smart people as I can, getting firsthand market data on what people are actually looking for and buying, and combining that with continuing to meet best companies out there that I can, you can start to synthesize trends, piece those together. I'd say the other thing that's important as an early VC is really focusing on your investment judgment. Don't just push your own investments or chase whatever seems hypiest without being able to explain why you and others think it's interesting. 
and also focus on supporting other investors at the firm at your level, as well as at the partnership level, because it makes it clear, yeah, it's not just, it's not just self-interested and you learn so much more again by collaborating with other people. I see. I keep talking with a lot of founders, smart founders, as well as investors outside of Greylock and in the same time, keep collecting more, more market data to, to build up your investment judgment over time. I think that's, so you like very calculated approach to grow expertise as well as to the power, the trust that you can build when talking with new founders. Yep. So at Greylock, you focus on enterprise investment across cybersecurity, AI and ML, modern data stack, SaaS application, as well as DevOps. As an early stage investor, what is your typical mental checklist that you use to evaluate entrepreneurs and make investment decisions? Yeah. So I, I get this question a lot. I think like for investments, the three areas we really look at the early stage are product, market, and, and most importantly, the founders. On the product side, we really try and dive into the architecture, uh, technically of what they're building and understand what's their differentiated approach versus what else is out there in the market. On the market side, you know, there's existing um, spend you can try and capture as a little bit more straightforward. If it's a newer market, you, uh, you can try and calculate both qualitatively of talking to the, again, best companies out there and get a sense of is this the market they care about. And then looking at growth rate of people using certain new technologies, et cetera. Um, founders, I think, again, is the, the most important and often the most uh, difficult part to assess. I'd say a key things I tend to look for are really the ability to communicate a company vision and sell that both to potential customers, as well as really the ability to recruit both technical and non-technical talent around the founder. I think beating deep technically is obviously preferable or to have that DNA on the team and also generally leads to better recruiting outcomes. And then overall, a willingness to move with velocity and get things done in the first six months to a year of a company and getting the foundation right really causes such an, it sets the inflection for continued growth down the road. Moving with velocity, I think it, it can be tough to know from one data points. That's why we really make an effort to get to know a founder early, often before they even start a company and build that relationship there. One, you have more data points on really both sides. One, I get a better sense of how the founder works. And two, they get a better sense of what it's like to work with me to see if it's a good mutual match between founder and VC. Yeah, thanks for coming over all this part, yeah. the product market, the father themselves, and within that father's period, you have the current communicator, technical expertise to recruit and build the product as well as the willingness to move with velocity. I want to investigate a couple of your investment that you got involved with just to paint a more vivid picture based on your previous answer on that checklist that you used. Greylock led the seed investment in One House earlier this year, which is a cloud-native managed lake house service that makes that legs easier, faster, and cheaper. Yeah, so what are some of the key factors that unlock your team to make this investment? Yeah, so I'd say, again, starting with the founding team, Vinod is an amazing technical talent, both in conversations with him and what we heard from mutual connections in our network. It was clear that he was 100x technical talent and built some of the most important systems at Uber. In particular, when he was at Uber, he faced a common challenge in working across data warehouses and data lakes. Warehouses are, of course, great to process and transform structured data for analytics, but they can be costly and have quality scaling. Data lakes, which I think have been out of boo in some cases over the past few years, 
are great for large volumes of mixed or unstructured data, but can be difficult to manage and sort through unless you're a skilled data engineer or data scientist. So Vinoth, when we're in issues, needs the performance of a warehouse and the scale of a data lake in real time. And being the town he is, goes out and creates uh, Apache hoodie to implement a new architecture where the core warehouse and database functionality was directly added to the data lake. So he was one of the, the earliest people in t- technology that is now known as the lake house. What is the lake house? It's a unified store, which decreases engineering time and effort spent maintaining across both the data warehouse and the data lake. It's also a single source for workloads across data science, machine learning, SQL, and analytics, which lowers redundancy. Again, you don't need to run uh, two systems and move data around across uh, all your different tools. And a lakehouse also gives you direct access to data, reduces staleness and latency, and it's also just way more cost-effective than just the warehouse or, again, maintaining two systems. That takes us to one house. One house leverages Apache Hoodie, but offers a cloud-native managed lakehouse service. It enables you to really build an open data ecosystem. So if you think of Snowflake as really pioneering the separation of compute and storage. This really does this at the vendor level. You can choose your own query engine and use it with your lake house. In fact, use multiple query engines depending on the workload. And I think, again, linking it back to our investment process, part of what we try and do is talk to leading companies and get a sense of, is this a technology that's interesting to them? And I think we were surprised at how many of the leading tech companies were already in, not only had we're early users, but we're moving more and more of their data stack towards lake house architecture, um, which we felt really showed the long-term direction the market would be taking. Yeah, thanks for clarifying on those five from the father of Vinod as an 100x engineer to the description of the lake house, the product, and I get to find out more about the market and how by talking with this leading bear company, we start adopting this new program for the uh, modern data architecture. And we, we talk more about uh, like I was later on in a chat in one of your articles. But before that, uh, talking about another investment that you got involved with at Greylog, uh, this is a Series A uh, investment in Baystand, which builds a powerful software toolkit that empowers technical data science team to serve, integrate, design, and ship their custom machine learning models efficiently. What about Baystand product market as well as the team that resonated with you? Baystand, we actually led the seed before I joined and then doubled down and led the A. I think this is a, that, that's something we actually really try and focus on is our C to series A conversion. And I think we take pride in, again, with our focus approach of really investing in seeds and converting over to the A. So it was great to be able to work with Tuhin and the rest of his team from the very early stages and, and continue to be excited to be able to lead the next round and build that conviction. So I think on base 10, the problem statement really resonated from my time working in data and machine learning. I think the key insight here is that there were too many handoffs from the ML team to the data engineering, to the platform team, to product engineering and to users, the whole process and cycle of building and operationalizing ML models was just too slow. And base 10 really came with a thesis of wanting to collapse the cycle and enable that uh, speed of iteration and put models to good use within an organization. One thing which we've seen, ML has tremendous potential in the enterprise. Operationalizing machine learning requires high coordination across all of these teams, 
highly skilled engineering and product work out of data science. And in talking to, again, large enterprises as part of our work, many were disappointed with the ROI they had gotten from the time and money they spent investing in machine learning. So to base 10 really solves not only the deployment side, but makes models easy to integrate into business critical processes and domain users, domain experts within business units by surrounding them with business logic and a front-end UI. So for example, if I were making a decision on a loan, you have an ML model, maybe it approves or does not approve the loan, but approving a loan is a pretty complex process. You really, you want branching logic to come off of that. Do we ask for more information? Do we send it for further approval? Do we send a denial email? So building that into one product when combined with the front end UI. So that again, that business users can actually interact with the model and don't need to be using a Jupyter notebook or Python, I think was really powerful. On the founder part of your question, they had seen this problem firsthand at their previous startup and it really felt like they were the right people to go solve this problem. I see. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying on, on all those boy. Reflecting on Joyce Barrett and supporting different research company why at Greylock, what advice have you given some of the portfolio companies in hiring decision and navigating product or go-to-market strategy? Yeah. So this is the part of my job I like the most. I'll say two things. One, we're the investment team at Greylock is fortunate to be supported by four specialist teams that do an amazing job uh, and spend just as much time working with the founders as we do. We have an engineering recruiting team that does product engineering and design, and they actually do direct hiring, which is a big differentiator from other from you know teams at other VC funds, which will just often advise startups and how they should hire, we will actually go out and place engineers for them directly. In some cases, we've placed like 10 of the first 15 engineers for a company. A competitive talent market, I think that makes a big difference. We have an, uh, an exec recruiting team that takes care to build a network and deep stable of talented execs, and if you're from CFOs to CT, VPs of engineering, whatever startups might need at the later stage as they continue to scale. We have a marketing and PR team to help companies with their launch and communicating out about what they do, as well as a customer development team to help us maintain relationships with buyers and CXOs across these organizations. I'd be remiss if I didn't say like, couldn't do my job without uh, the rest of the broader organization within Greylog. On the hiring side, I would say like we, I advise startups to really look for talented people inflecting upwards in their career and ready to grow, grow along with the startup. In some cases, they may have done the job before they're being uh, asked to do, but it's in other cases, you can look for early signs of, again, velocity and hire people when and assume that they'll be able to you know, figure it out along the way and build the airplane on the way down, as people are fond of saying. Product, I think, is... One of the toughest parts early, particularly for very technical founders, I'd say like really focus on talking to as many buyers, potential personas as possible and making sure you can concisely explain your vision, the problem you're solving, how you're solving it, who you're solving it for, et cetera. I'd say so many company, companies try and move too quickly and never nail this part. So the foundation isn't there. And they end up, sometimes it takes till series B for them to realize that they didn't get that in place the right way. 
and go to market. I'd say it's really all about figuring out your strategy and then getting the right people in place. Your top down and bottoms up, the hiring you're going to do looks very different. And the strategy you want to build out varies according to that. I'd also say pricing is something that is critical and often not thought about early enough. Lots of companies over or dramatically underprice and then may set up the, set up the wrong incentives based on how they price. It's well, like all, all these different parts, and I'm, I think a lot of fathers listening can, can, can appreciate some of your, your thoughts on important priorities, important criteria to look for when execute some of these current decisions as well as navigating the product and go to market strategy. Another great thing about Grela that I, I personally appreciate is how much content that the, the firm put out from blog post to events to podcast conversation, right? And for the next few questions, I want to review a, a couple of projects, content that you contribute to during your time at Grela. Uh, a very notable one that you work on is the project called Castle in the Cloud, which is created back in August 2021. And this project basically maps the cloud ecosystem to better understand how startups can successfully compete and thrive against the big three cloud vendors. Could you mind unpacking some of the key takeaway from that project? Yeah, so this is a, an undertaking that I did with my partners, Jerry and Corinne. And the three of us uh, you know, set out to build a comprehensive project to map the cloud ecosystem. As you said, we launched in 2021. We made an update this year. The intention is for this to continue to be an annual project and look at trends of how the cloud ecosystem is evolving year to year. I'd also say like we want founders to submit companies to be included in our analysis. Some have even as an unintended benefit gotten sales leads from being part of it. And it really gives them a chance to see market size, whether competing against where the opportunity is, et cetera. So we hope it's participatory exercise as well. Mm -hmm. So what we really did was look at every cloud service offered by AWS, Azure, GCP, and categorize them into markets and submarkets, uh, and then look at where startups compete against them by market and submarket, and then analyze where they have the most success. So there's, I want to say, six or 700 cloud services out there and hundreds of startups in our database. I think some of the key takeaways we discuss in, in terms of how startups can actually successfully compete against the big three are one, owning the community and having developers really passionate about your product. You take a PLG motion, get it in the hands of users and personae, including outside of cloud architects and engineers. I think there are certain markets like security where I spend a lot of my time where you want redundancy and separation of systems anyway, and you don't want all your eggs in one basket of a cloud provider. And then another classic example is just really building deep IP on Snowflake, has been one of the most successful companies in competing uh, against the clouds with like Redshift and BigQuery. And they succeeded by building deep IP with operational excellence. We talked a little earlier about, hey, they rethought the entire data warehouse process by separating storage from compute. We were able to exploit really a fundamental advantage of cloud computing, turning storage, compute, and networking into an elastic resource to build a better database. There's a number of other ways to compete against the clouds, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, I see. Just got a quick recap, like community like grow, product PRG motion, as well as deep technical expertise to key things that startup can become challenger to these big cloud vendors. And I'll be sure to include the link, the, the project to the show notes just for reading purpose, as well as any startup want to submit that information to be, get the data into custom cloud. Now, let's follow up on that project. You have written another in-depth article called VC funding for the cloud, which 
I guess, basically elaborate more on some of the takeaways from that project to come up with actionable items on the trends in the ecosystem. And in particular, this block was dissect the five markets of security, AI and ML, management and governance, developer tools, and edge computing that attract PC funding. What are the major trends in this market that you're most excited about in Camellia's as ally in this article? Yeah, I love all of these markets. I'll zoom in on a, a few in particular. So starting with security, the cloud provides amazing benefits, but it also presents an increased security risk. Not only is the potential surface area for attacks larger, it's also outside the safety of controlled on-prem systems. It also poorly understood by traditional security teams and vendors. There's a good stat out there. The number of cyber attacks per week on corporate networks increased 50% in 2021 versus 2020 and peaked at an all-time high in December due to Log4j. So this is a market where Grilla has had a lot of success and we continue to be very bullish. I'd also say on an uncertain economic future, cybersecurity is viewed as not really discretionary budget compared to other categories of software spend out there. It's because the market's going down. If anything, like that increases um, hacker and attacker behavior. I think one really interesting trend there is intersecting with some of the uh, data and machine learning trends we're tracking. There's a shortage of cybersecurity talent out there, I think, to a million uh, roles or jobs that are undersupplied in the U.S. alone, meaning there's a real need for automation, machine learning to help find the needle in the haystack and, and, and log data that could indicate attacks, as well as in sorting through the massive amount of vulnerabilities that a lot of these tools identify and helping prioritize those. So that's the first area. Another I would say is in machine learning, in particular over the past year or so, large language models have been a focus for us and for, I think, the investor market at large, both in terms of building own large models, as well as in building applications in top, uh, on top of things like GPT-3, we've seen a whole new set of generation of companies out there. And in particular, it provides a really interesting opportunity for systems to work with humans. The stats out there are pretty crazy on the efficiency of software engineers working with GitHub Copilot as opposed to on their own and just the amount of code out there that Copilot is writing or helping to write. We actually made two sizable investments here, one in a company called Adept AI, another called Inflection, which was co-founded by Reid Hoffman and Mustafa, the co-founder of, former co-founder of DeepMind. They're both doing large language models, one on the enterprise side, one on the consumer side. And Ad Adept in particular has some really cool prototypes out there encourage people to check them out. One, a couple other areas I'd highlight, management and governance. We actually put ESG in here which is an area where I've been spending a fair amount of time. There's a lot of opportunity in helping enterprises become more sustainable and manage their sustainability teams. And we've seen several large startups here. And if you go focus on your cloud, your it, it's really a data problem in terms of how do I uh, gather and formulate all of my emissions factors across a large and often complex organization. The other big trend in this area is cloud cost management. I think it was the number one ranked cloud initiative, according to Flexera's 20, uh, 2022 State of the Cloud report. Respondents reported being more than 10% over budget and self-estimated about a third of spent cloud spend was completely wasted. 
We've made a couple of investments here in cost management. Cribble is one in the observability stack that's doing an amazing job providing a neutral routing and filtering layer in front of different EPM and observability tools. And then we recently announced Blue Sky as a way for people to help control their Snowflake and Databricks and other large costs of other like large cloud stores. And then we'd also highlight Edge. Edge is an area we, we haven't made as many investments yet, um, but we've seen edge computing we would define as storage and compute on the edge, as well as a lot of use cases around AI, gaming, IoT, in particular, like WebAssembly as a technology we're tracking very closely, both in the browser, we've seen the power that has in things like Figma, as well as outside of it, being able to deploy Wasm on the edge. For sure. Yeah, I wish you include the article. Uh, the, the show notes. It's interesting to have a chance to read this blog post in more detail. It's very well written and, and very comprehensive. Just out of curiosity, these are different markets, right? And you did research on all these different markets to figure out the trends and companies and startups that are working on these important problems. From an investor market analysis part of view, like just in general, how do you like up to date with different markets? Because it sounds like you try to balance your time somewhat like equally across the different trends. How do you like personally keep up with your learning curve when there's a new investment trends something to keep up with? Yeah. It, it's a great question. And like how to spend your time in VC is often one of the, the hardest challenges. Mm-hmm. One, again, we make an effort to speak to buyers of IT and compute at, across large organizations and get a sense from them. And then we try and layer that on. There's sort of qualitative findings with Gartner and other publications out there that have data around what's exciting and then combining it with our in the weeds, castles in the cloud analysis of combing through all the startups out there, seeing where they're launching, seeing where they're able to gain revenue against the clouds. I see. So in combination of both in-house analysis as well as more in- industry analysis for major publication like Gartner, as well as conversation with the practitioners, founders, buyers. Yep. So I want to zoom in on this article that you wrote a couple of months ago about the next cloud data platform. Since the podcast is really focused on, on data, I think this is a very relevant article and it examines how the data warehouse, the lighthouse, and semantically uh, could combine to create a platform for uh, data ap- uh, application. And you also mentioned a little bit about the lighthouse, your under answers about that investment on one house, right? So can you elaborate more on this vision? Yeah. So this is an area I'm really excited about. As we discussed earlier, Snowflake has been one of the most successful stories in competing against the cloud based on deep IP. And there's been a Snowflake ecosystem that has sprung up around it to get data in, check quality, get data out, et cetera. I think the evolution of this is data apps, which I would define as internal and external apps built on Snowflake as the backend. So security companies like Lacework, Hunters, Panther offer this option to use Snowflake as your backend data store and Snowflake's acquisition of Streamlit could represent part of an effort to really develop a Snowflake app store. So where I think this goes from here, one, I think lake houses could play a role. Again, it's a single ecosystem, which really enables real-time streaming, machine learning, data science use cases that are important capabilities as we think through building out full-fledged data apps. And then I would say the second component, as you mentioned, is the semantic layer. 
regardless of whether you have the lake house or your cloud data warehouse at your core, you really need this semantic layer. This is the evolution of some of the metric store and, and headless BI concepts we've seen out there. A metric store really standardizes metric definitions, business logic, and a layer independent from downstream systems like BI pools, ML notebooks, consuming mm -hmm. applications, et cetera. So that ensures consistent definitions across a company uh, and helps, you know, preclude breaks in uh, downstream systems as changes are made to the core data store. Um, so the semantic layer really generalizes this approach beyond metrics. And actually, you can think about it as creating an API for people and applications to access business objects uh, directly that are tied to um, your, your lake house or cloud data warehouse on the back end. Um, this really empowers analysts to engage directly with concepts like customers, plans, products, and allows applications to be built upon a much more stable environment and foundation and sort of custom seek queries, the things that can change as, as your underlying data store breaks. So I think the long-term vision is these applications could actually be able to write back to the database as well. So it creates almost a transactional type experience for these data applications and replicate some of the OLTP functionality out there. My viewpoint is combining this more mature development base with simple, scalable, and unified cloud data warehouses and lake houses helps realize the vision of the cloud data platform overall and challenge some of the platform dominance of the three cloud providers at the cloud developer level. Yeah, and so capturing that sentiment again and given the momentum on the other stack, I think like more and more of these ideas can get fulfilled sooner or later. Just out of curiosity, since you published this post, what was in general perception of the data community? How do they receive this idea of the next cloud data platform? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been pretty positive. It was, it's, it's an idea other data leaders have been thinking about. Ben Stansel from Mode in particular wrote some, some similar steps that I, you know, took some inspiration from. And I've gotten a lot of reach out from companies that are trying to build this sort of semantic layer in particular across different, different areas of financial systems and core banking. I would say like people have thought about how do we abstract financial primitives in a way that leverages this data backend makes it very simple for finance professionals or for, for banks to build or an accounting for finance professionals to understand logic and not have to get into the data model weeds of the data warehouse. So it's been a good reaction and excited to see more and more companies coming out and doing things in this area. Absolutely. So I want to wrap up our main conversation on a fun note. As an avid creator and highly curious person, your interests span from cutting edge AI and ML software to classical history to digital medicine. What are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Yeah, so Moneyball we talked about earlier continues to be a favorite. Another one I'll highlight is called Why the West Rules for Now, uh, which is a provocative title, but basically looks at the comparative development across civilizations throughout history and tracks the rise and fall of civilizations across different societal markers to show, dating very far back, how things have evolved to where we are today. You can think of it as Shades of Guns, Germs, and Steel. It's actually written by the chair of the Stanford Classics Department. Classes from, so I'm a little bit biased, but I think understanding, uh, you know, one, how it shapes society today, and two, it talks a lot about the, what they call the uh, advantages of backwardness and how that actually shaped innovation across different regions. 
I think is really powerful and actually has some lessons for uh, startup development as well. Yeah. yeah it sounds like you, you enjoy learning from history or reading history and from the past to apply that and to your current work for the, for, for, for the present and the future. So as in that history can be extrapolated for the present and the future, especially in, in, in technology. I think that's, that seems to be the case. Jason, in this part of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can provide the quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three entrepreneurs in the data and AI infrastructure space whose work you admire. Yeah, so many names out there. I'll give two from our portfolio and two from outside. From our portfolio, David Luan was at OpenAI and Google and, and leads Adapt, just an amazing founder, an amazing technical mind. Uh, and Alex Ratner from Snorkel, who I think is a great example of moving from academia and his, his PhD at Stanford to industry. And I think a great model for how that, how you can commercialize an academic project. Outside, Frank Sludman, obviously a legendary CEO, Alex Oakley. But I, I think it's really inspirational to see how he's built go-to-market across multiple generations of data companies and being able to do it for so long. And then Clevin from Hugging Face in terms of best-in-class examples of how to build an open-source community. Number two, name one book that you are, would recommend for people to cultivate better for science. Again, I'll, I'll give a couple here in hope. And, uh, I think anything by Neil Stevenson, really, which is a very stereotypical Silicon Valley answer, but dating back to... Snow crash and Cryptonomicon to, we'll see, termination shock may prove to be precedent in some ways on climate change. And then another thing I've been read recently, it was Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. Talks a lot about, again, some of the same shifts that I talked about in why the West rules for now, but with a more economic lens. Finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early career venture capitalists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would basically say it's really all about your founders. They will end up being your biggest advocates, both within the firm and to other founders. Spend as much time as you can working with them and learning from them. Fabulous. I think that's a great way to conclude our conversation. So Jason, I really enjoy chatting with you today, learning about your, your upbringing in the Bay Area and become fascinated with baseball analytics. Your time studying math and computational science with clinical study and learning Stanford, your involvement with uh, Open Door, McKinsey. I have fun enjoying current journey as an enterprise investor at Grinock Partners, investing in cybersecurity, IIML, modern data stack, as well as DevOps. So I'm sure thought leadership on the next cloud data platform, VC funding for the cloud, as well as generally some of the things that you look for evaluating investment decision, especially on related to the importance of working with the partners. I think that one thing that has been um, emphasized multiple times throughout this conversation, I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes. So. And listeners can have a chance to you know, take a look, follow up, and learn more about some of your work at Greylock and the Richard if they're interested in some of your work. And really enjoy chatting with you today and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.